So I, I, I know that you, you were um, hitting back on the, the, unfortunately, the libertarian aspect, because there are some interesting things going on in Vermont uh, with the labeling. Uh, act and the GMOs, and I, and I saw your interview uh, with uh, Dr. Mercola, um, or your, the, the debate uh, that you guys had, and, and yeah, you know, uh-huh. it's a pretty, pretty interesting um, topic. And so Vermont's been pretty progressive, and they just passed this act, uh, which requires all of that. And I was sort of, I don't know, do, do you see that being a trend that might other states might pick up? Uh, going. Oh, a, 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 yeah, a, a, absolutely, uh, no question about it. I, I see it, I see it moving, uh, moving pretty aggressively, actually. Um, of course, you know, Monsanto has already said they're going to sue Vermont. We'll, you know, we'll see how that winds its way through the courts. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, um, to to make a well, to to, to answer it maybe in a couple of uh, ways. First of all. As you noticed in that debate with Dr. McCullough, I made a great distinction between states passing labeling laws and the federal government passing labeling laws. I see, mm-hmm. I see a tremendous difference uh, between a state or locality doing something as opposed to the federal government. And, and the reason this is an important distinction, you may well realize that there is uh, a lot of, of thinking out there about size, about scale about um, about when does something I mean and this is certainly a business principle uh, when does something become um, so big that it's 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 bureaucracy begins to suffocate its own you know its own viability and you know we see this in nature uh, you know uh, un what unbridled growth in nature we call cancer. You know, uh, cancer is unbridled growth, and and so right. growth in and of itself is not a a, a good thing. Nature always goes. Uh, it, it has a um, a governor on that accelerator. You know, and it and it and when the when there, you know, when there are uh, uh, too many wolves, uh, they eat too many bison, and there are not enough bison, and the wolves starve to death, and. And then the bison can, you know, can grow because there are fewer wolves. When there are too many bison, bison eating the grass, the wolves uh, are are fat and sassy and have big litters, and and the wolves uh, eat the bison down. So you know, there's a in nature, there's this this kind of a governor on the, on the system that, that that makes it function. Um, right. And and so in in our businesses, and I would suggest by extension in our governance. Um, when we when we arrogate things to the federal level, there is I think it's a valid question today to ask how many things how many things um, have we as a civilization become so big in that we can efficiently operate them at the federal level? And of course, this was a question that the founders of our country asked, and why they were big proponents of states' rights. Over federal, they, they wanted a very a fairly small federal, and and huge states' rights. Um, one of the reasons for that is because the size of the governing unit is small enough to actually be efficient. Um, you know, we have this new saying, "Too big to fail." Well, I would suggest that the 
that the real par- the, the real study of paradigms, you know, Joel Arthur Barker wrote the book in what, 1974, Paradigms, and popularized the word, um, and he said one of the, you know, he had these axioms of paradigms, and one of them is that um, that when they get too big, they, they collapse, and, and in fact, a paradigm on the, that, that appears to be on the on the point of perfection is actually on the brink of collapse, and and we see that over and over in life, you know, uh, and and so there, there's a, there's a lot of I think validity to the idea that with 330 million people and a centralized um, a centralized uh, government control, um, there are there are just simply very few things that can be done with as diverse and wide uh, a country as we have. There are very few things that can be done. Um, emanating from the federal level that can actually be fair, that can be um, egalitarian, that can actually, you know, uh, uh, be be um, customized for a for an area. And so, um, while you know, while I may see, th- you know, there are many things that I would disagree that the federal should do, that I would see very very fine at the state level simply because it's smaller, people can see it, there's accountability, and, and uh, it, it, from the size of governance, uh, it makes a big difference. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, having, having 20 students in a classroom and having 1,000 students in the classroom. You simply, you simply can't uh, get the level of attention and accountability in a 1,000 or 2,000-person classroom than you can in a classroom of, of uh, 15 or 20. So I do, so, I do see that the, I, I do see the GMO backlash uh, as growing. Whether that manifests itself in in uh, in in you know legis- in legislation like Vermont uh, is doing, of course there are other initiatives. California, Oregon mm-hmm. is having these other initiatives, uh, and, and I do see it uh, moving forward, uh, moving you know progressing, um, or whether it's just uh, you know people not buying junk at the marketplace and buying from their farmers or, or whatever. I mean, for us, uh, we have simply made the decision we're not going to use GMOs. And so without any, you know, regulation, legislation, subsidies, or anything else, um, we spend an extra 50 cents a bushel on local grains that are grown without, you know, not using GMOs and um, and and even even uh, started a we, – we kind of helped – start finance a local uh, feed mill that would grind feed for us uh, for the entire mid-Atlantic region, and that mill only uses GMO-free, so nobody can push a wrong button or whatever. And um, so this is, you know, this is the way it, it, it this is the way innovation, um, you know, moves through the, you know, moves through the culture, and and this is proliferating without any, you know, without any regulations, politicians, or you know. Jets being flown across the country for wine and cheese tasting. This is being done simply by uh, an informed populace that's saying we want GMO-free food. It's very exciting. Yeah, no, definitely to the individual choice. So it seems like the decentralization, like we see it with the food industry, you always have we have issues with all these recalls, decentralization of energy, hopefully yes. with some solar and all that kind of stuff, and now even yes. decentralization of, of regulations might might even be. Um, Apropos, I guess. Boy, you you certainly uh, hit the nail on the head there. You, you you're speaking my language. You know, um, a lot of people don't realize that the proliferation of 
the of the what we call government of the federal government oversight uh, grew out of an industrial uh, economy. It grew. I mean, uh, the the Food Safety and Inspection Service uh, started mm-hmm. in 1906, 1906, 1907. Um, a, a lot of this grew out of the the fledgling industrial uh, food movement and industrial economy where the you know the, um, the the craftsman had been replaced by a factory the you know the the, cop, the the corner cobbler and the the corner you know pottery maker whatever uh, you know these these uh, uh, individual artisans craftsmen if you will um, mm-hmm. were gradually being replaced by factories which were opaque um, and 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 were on had had you know from from labor issues to safety issues to, to to uh, you know consistency issues that sort of thing, and so as the civilization, um, as the civilization was on this dis- disruptive edge of innovation, moving from from individual craftsmen to uh, to factory mentality, there was a huge amount of of um, uh, mental angst and anguish going on with the opaqueness, the unknowingness, the the, the, the paranoia, the fear of this new. Uh, paradigm, and so the the culture began asking for more um, for more governmental uh, oversight. oversight. What's right. happened now with the internet, with the democratization of everything from Wikipedia to Angie's List to you know uh, whatever, um, with with the with the uh, the Facebook and the feedback loop. Um, there is a huge uh, uh, awareness now um, that we are moving out of the time when third-party oversight, when, when governmental oversight is necessary. We're, we're moving back into a tribalism, a craft-oriented uh, uh, tribe of, 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 of accountability within the transparent tribe uh, through the you know, through the internet, um, you know, on, we use the internet in our business uh, a lot. For example, if if we have, for example, a a restaurant that gets uh, in arrears on payment, um, we'll simply, you know, we'll, we'll do all we can to to collect. And if they still don't pay, then we put on our, you know, on our Facebook uh, that this restaurant hates small farmers, doesn't pay their bills, wants to steal from you know local food producers. And, and shame them, and that's better than courts. It's better than regulations. It's better than everything. And, sure and it is. doesn't cost us a, doesn't get a penny except putting a line on, on our Facebook page. So uh, I, see the, uh, I see the power of this new uh, Internet accountability, if you will, um, as completely uh, – as making the industrial regulatory climate, which grew up in the industrial system, for the industrial system and is now onerously industrial centralized based, I see that now as becoming obsolete with the innovation of a new market tribe being cultivated by the transparent uh, uh, closed feedback loops. Yeah. And we see more of these these craftsmen butchers, at least in this area in the Northeast. Um, I have a lot of little small-time butcher shops sort of popping up and stuff like that. And I know that you're very um, supportive, and you have been in the past at least, uh, of Chipotle. 
Um, yeah. They're buying products uh, from you guys. I guess I don't know if that's still going on, but I would, I would yeah. imagine it is. Yeah, we're, we're, su- we're supplying two, uh, two restaurants here, the cl- our closest ones, uh, with, with all their pork, yes. Now, would you see, because other sort of restaurants are becoming more organic, well, the customers or the consumers being more demanding, I guess, of, of organic and local sourcing of products. Do you see um, locals? I think, obviously, yeah, it would be yes, but due to, to the fact that the aging farmers, um, is there sort of a revitalization of a younger generation of farmers that might be able to support those types of restaurants to mass market, you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, No question. I mean, the organization, if somebody wants to Google it up and and see some of the most cutting edge uh, on this, there's an organization called Greenhorns. Uh, Greenhorns, and uh, and it is dedicated to, you know, to young farmers. Our own... um, our, our daughter-in-law here, Sherry, has started a website called Eager Farmer. Uh, Eager Farmer is a matchmaking service for both interns, apprentices, and people who want to get into farming and people who are exiting farming. It's, it's worldwide, a, a clearinghouse. And so, um, as yes, as the aging farmer, the average far, American farmer now is almost 60 years old. So, you know, there are some pretty um, daunting, daunting agricultural statistics now uh, coming out of the uh, you know the the the, the agriculture um, e- economics departments, sociology departments in land grant universities, you know one is that uh, in the next 15 years, 50 percent of America's agricultural equity is going to change hands. Uh, 15 years, 50 percent equity change hands. That's that's a, a you know we we've never been there before. In fact. Arguably, no culture has ever been there before. So this is this is a pretty big deal, and this is not just unique to America. It's the same in Australia. It's the same in New Zealand. Um, to a large extent, it's the same in in the developed areas of uh, Europe as well. Um, although they have some odd things with uh, with uh, tenureage and uh, um, you know, nobility and other other things that that give them a little bit of protection um but it, it's a it's a big it's a big deal this transfer this wealth transfer what's going to happen and so yes there is a an absolute um explosion of interest among young people um not just because they're but because frankly the the uh american work workplace climate um has become less human friendly, if I may say that. Yeah, I let's help tell you. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that that um, many, many, many of our intern applicants are late twenties and mid thirties in, uh, you know, in uh, Dilbert cubicles working for working for Fortune 500, uh, you know, uh, big companies, right. and. Um, and and they just feel stifled in that bureaucratic, uh, you know, cubicle uh, climate, and uh, are desperate to do something with their hands. I think that our culture has done a great disservice to craftsmanship and artisanship by assuming that everyone who has academic ability uh, needs to be white collar, never have calluses and splinters, and work, you know, a- away from home. Um, you know, we. You know, we're, we're desperate for good mechanics, plumbers, electricians, 
um, you know, excavators, and and mm-hmm. the you know the the, the trades. Um, right. And so there, there's a tremendous, uh, almost a condescending prejudice in our educational establishment today uh, against working with your hands, working outside, working in the soil, you know, um, these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, Jim Powers, I think, would, ag- would agree with you there. Uh, the, you know, the, the famous investor, uh, he says that the farmers are the, the next generation. They're going to be driving the Maseratis and the, the stockbrokers are going to be driving taxis, <laughs> according to him. <laughs> it's basically supply and demand. Um, so so uh, I just had another question in terms of the uh, Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. I was wondering if you could just give me a little insight and background as, as to what they're working on these days and, and how the organization, I guess, got started, I guess. Sure. Wonderful. Well, um, I make no mistake that my dream is that the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, which for sake of discussion, I'll just call I'll just call the uh, the defense fund right now for so I don't have to Sounds say the good. whole thing over and over. Brevity, yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, the defense fund. Um, that I I I am um, looking forward to the day that it's as powerful as the National Rifle Association. Um, if if Americans ever get as excited about the health and freedom of their guts as they do of their guns, we'll have a very, very different uh, society. So that being said, the reason it was started several years ago, and it's only been in existence now for about five or six years, uh, was because we started having, you know, uh, uh, I call them the, you know, the food Nazis, uh, the mm-hmm. food police would come in, the SWAT teams, and raid. Uh, you know, one of the most famous was the Rossum, the Rossum Food Club in uh, Los Angeles that was, was raided. That was all captured on film, you know, SWAT teams, yeah. uh, drawn guns and everything for these people. That It was a private club. They contracted with individual farms to buy uh, what they considered integrity food, like raw milk, raw kefir, um, you know, pastured chickens, uh, homemade, you know, charcuterie, these kinds of things. And, um, uh, you know, membership only. It was not open to the public, blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't good enough. The, the agents came in and, uh, and, and confiscated everything and, and, and put, the, put the perpetrators in jail. Um, so... This, and this is happening all over the country. We're seeing uh, we're seeing these kinds of raids in our own farm. I mean, I wrote a book, uh, what you know, 12 years ago. Everything I want to do is illegal, uh, documenting our um, multi-decade run-in with what we call the food police. And um, the as the orthodoxy, what people don't understand is that there is a growing orthodoxy in our country regarding food the orthodoxy is is that um you know in order to be safe food has to be sterile well um Mm -hmm. you and i are not sterile we we have you know we have three trillion trillion not billion trillion uh intestinal microflora and fauna uh that want to eat you know living material not you know sterile material um and so there are actually way more good bugs than bad bugs in the world. What makes the good bugs, and, and if we provide a habitat where the good bugs beat the bad bugs, then that, that's healthy. Um, 
And, and so there's, there's an orthodoxy uh, that's growing in the USDA, in the FDA, that A, you know, all food eaten needs to be government inspected, uh, that, that, that people cannot be trusted to, you know, to, to choose the food of their choice from the farmer of their choice. Farmers can't be trusted to grow safe food. Um, there's a growing orthodoxy that, uh, that you know, animals need to all be vaccinated and, and medicated in order to be healthy, that plants need to all be fungicided and pesticided and herbicided in order to be healthy, that, that compost is, un, is unsafe because it's, you know, it's got bugs in there, and, and safe is, is, uh, is you know, chemical-based um, you know, fertilizer, 10-10-10, whatever. You know, we, we just see more and more of these orthodoxies. And, uh, and what that does is that those of us who dare to walk to the beat of a different drummer or take, you know, Robert Frost's Road Less Taken, traveled, we are systematically being um, um, gunned down, uh, terrorized by these food police and called heretics, lunatics, whatever, um, and actually, you know, uh, viewed as, as a criminal element in society just because we happen to want to, you know, drink raw milk or, or you know, eat compost-grown tomatoes or uh, make, you know, homemade cheese. And right. um, and so the the fund, the defense fund, grew out of this what what many were experiencing um, was this this heavy-handed uh, um, tyranny coming into the alternative food system, and so what they're doing now is they are the the fund um, and anyone who who anyone who actually believes that you should be able to have the freedom to eat the food of your choice from the farmer of your choice needs to join the fund. What they offer is legal counsel for, especially for farmers. Um, we've used them three times in just four years. We, I mean, I can give you an example of what they do. We, we had a, a, a restaurant call us in a panic. Uh, we supply about 50 restaurants. This restaurant called us in a right. panic said that a new, a new health department inspector had just come in and uh, threw out our eggs, said they were illegal to sell because they didn't have a <laughs> USDA uh, stamp of, of approval on them. And right. um, so I said, well, okay, give me the name of the inspector and give me the, 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 the ruling that she cited. And the chef, you know, got it, looked it up, gave it to me. And I just hung up with him. I called the, the defense fund. An attorney answered. They've got 24-7 hotline access. I said, you know, here's the name of the inspector. Here's the citation code. Uh, and he said, no problem. And 24 hours later, the health department issued an apology saying they were wrong. They'd overstepped their bounds. Now, how long do you think it would have taken me as a dumb farmer to be able yep. to get that kind of concession from the health department? I mean, we'd still be working, you know, uh, 100 years from now. And, and so, so – they're not winning every case, but they are gradually creating a climate. Uh, they're creating a wiggle room, a, a, a climate that at least makes the regulators um, think twice, maybe three times, before they come in with a SWAT team and confiscate somebody's, you know, beat home home freezer. Um, at least they're making them check their steps a little bit, and so it's it's very exciting. And they've just made a, a big step by hiring their first executive director, 
as you know, with, with uh, you know, NGOs, when an organization that's all running with, you know, kind of 